This episode is brought to you by the insurance agent I use for my own business, Doug Lynch, and his broker, Tracy Deerfelt, with the Nationwide Contractors Alliance. In the last year, I got to know Doug and Tracy as they were consulting for me on some questions I had for my own company. And after more than a decade in the business, I can confidently say I didn't even understand half the equation when it comes to general liability insurance. I'm confident, actually, that very few builders do. I had some big gaps in my understanding and even more in my coverage. Now, this is a risk-heavy business, and you can't leave everything you've built, no pun intended, to chance. Make sure you have good protection. Make sure you have reliable protection, and make sure the agents you work with have your back. Doug and Tracy are by far the best I've found in the business, or I wouldn't use them myself. They assessed my particular business, built me a customized plan around it, and now, of course, I sleep better at night as a result. Visit douglaslynch.com and nwcalliance.com to learn more about how insurance and other solutions can really work for builders. For those of you who listen to this show regularly, you know that I sometimes like to scare the socks off of you. But of course, it is out of nothing but love. And today is one of those episodes. We are interviewing Don Shelton today with Bush Rudnicki Shelton. They are, in my opinion, the top home building law firm in the state of Texas. They actually write the contracts for the Texas Association of Builders. So they are always up to date on the legislative measures that are affecting our industry. They see, as far as I know, as many cases brought against home builders as anyone out there in our state. So we couldn't have a better expert to address some of the issues with us that home builders are facing. Now, about a year and a half ago, we interviewed James Rodnicki, one of the other partners, and that was in one of the first 10 episodes. I still think it's a really relevant episode. Definitely recommend you listen to that. But today we've got a little different angle. Today we're going to be talking about uh, some of the things that Don has seen uh, currently, some of the big topics, the current topics and events that are unfolding, as well as some of his top tips for just simply having your house in order always and at all times. So um, this is an episode, whether you live in the state of Texas or not, I still think you can get some good benefit from it. So I recommend it. Hope you guys are doing well. Enjoy the episode. So... Don, let's start this off by talking about lawsuits. And specifically, I'm curious about what type of lawsuits that you're seeing most frequently these days. Well, it's changed. You know, when I started practicing law about 20 years ago, it was a completely different kind of lawsuit and different kind of homeowner and a different kind of plaintiff's counsel as well. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, every nearly every case I had on the construction defect world was a foundation claim of some sort. Uh, I'm in North Texas, but all across Texas, we have various kinds of soils 
Texas sits in the Eagle Ford geological formation. So you don't really know what you're going to get unless you test the soils. Well, back in those times, it was maybe you do geotech, maybe you don't. Um, now it's pretty much industry standard to do it, and even some cities require it, whether they should or they shouldn't. Um, stepping out of their authority is another issue. But we used to see lots of major structural defect cases, foundation-type claims. And I will say that uh, most of my builders, whether they're custom home guys, regional builders, or publicly traded companies, they're all building much better foundations. The science is better. Uh, it may have been there before, but we're just now using it, um, especially with building post-tension slab on grade foundations, which are you know, more affordable a lot of the time. You can use the science from the geotechnical reports and uh, treat the soils, uh, put in piers or whatever other things you need to do to make accommodations for the post-tension slab on grade. And we're, we're building those now to a better standard. And so I'm just not getting as many foundation cases. Now I still get them, still get a lot of them, but it's not it's not that volume. Now what we're seeing is, you know, because plaintiff's counsel, frankly, they they always catch up, you know, uh, with the most recent thing. Uh, and, you know, it's no different than any other litigation that kind of comes and goes. And whenever you have the number of people moving to Texas every day and the economy exploding and doing so well and all these folks coming to Texas, mainly from California, and other places too, uh, they bring with them a different mindset. Uh, we also have new codes, uh, new energy requirements. And so those are kind of the cases we're seeing more often. Um, we're seeing a lot of code violation cases where the house is performing. It's performing just fine. There is nothing, quote, wrong from a construction defect standpoint. but there are code violations and there are law firms out there that that's what they do. They go through and they just start deconstructing a house literally through destructive uh, testing. They'll peel off, you know, some of the exterior, whether it be brick or stucco and, you know, see what's behind it, see if the windows are flashed um, the right way, even if you don't have any damage. Uh, because if you've looked at the code lately, if you have a printed copy, like I still do in my library, and we have just about every version, uh, that thing's pretty thick. Uh, it's, you know, it's a little misleading when you look at it online or on your phone. Um, that thing is as big as any textbook you would ever see. And so there's going to be some code violations in a lot of homes because we don't, you know, depending on where you're at in Texas or in the country for that matter, the IRC, which a lot of these cities just wholesale adopt and don't know what's in it, it, it stands for International Residential Code. So they're trying to cover a whole lot of stuff that they don't need to cover depending on where you're at in Texas. If you're in Dallas-Fort Worth or Houston or Corpus, that's different than what you need in El Paso or Amarillo. We have a very big state, and so you get code violations that don't matter. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of that litigation. We're seeing uh, uh, weather-resistant barrier uh, um, litigation. 
Uh, and part of that is, is it's a big ticket item to declad an entire property. Uh, we're also seeing, you know, uh, you know, as far as the claims themselves, those are the big ones, right? We're also seeing a resurgence of uh, stucco litigation. It's made its way through Florida and is now showing up here in Texas. And we're handling, my firm's handling a lot of those uh, cases. We thought they went away for a long time, uh, but they're back. Uh, and usually when you have stucco cases, you get mold claims. Uh, so we're seeing more mold claims as well now. As far as the type of uh, product that is getting sued on the most, um, your your particular listeners are a little bit safer um, in the sense it's single family kind of custom homes uh, because most of the litigation is really focused on multifamily attached product. But I will say uh, more and more so um, your custom home builders out there are building attached product um, through townhomes or other type of multi-unit structures that aren't multi-family structures per se. And so the law firms that sue builders all day, every day, they uh, like to concentrate on multifamily because it's, you know, sometimes hundreds of lawsuits all in one. And so it's a real economies of scale for them. So for the custom home guy, uh, you're a little bit safer because the law firms that that's all they do is sue builders and they like to concentrate on the low hanging fruit. Uh, they don't necessarily want to mess with a custom home guy, but there's plenty of lawyers out there that will. Um, there's way too many lawyers and, you know, that's, you know, so there's going to be a lot of litigation um, for, for your guys. Um, you know, it, the, the hard part in avoiding litigation is that once, if you're doing a custom home, you're dealing with a consumer that has a higher income. They're not scared of lawyers. Uh, they'll go meet with a lawyer. They know lawyers. And so it's more accessible. Um, your single family. Or they are lawyers. Or they are, right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, or they know someone or they, yeah. you know, they're, you know, golfing buddy or whatever. And so they have those connections. You're absolutely right. Yeah, whereas whereas your single family kind of starter home or any houses kind of under that $300,000 range, um, they, you know, they're, they're more apprehensive to go connect with a lawyer if they think they have a construction defect. So, um, and, and frankly, you know, most of the, the starter homes are, uh, or, uh, more affordable housing, those builders take care of their people anyways. You know, I mean, we, we do stay busy as lawyers here, uh, doing just representing builders. Uh, but I can tell you in Texas, uh, we have some really good self-regulation. We have a really good, uh, warranty system. If you're say using the Texas Association of Builders contracts, that's a great warranty. It's one of the leading ones in the nation. Um, so there's, you know, Texas is a good place to be a homeowner. You know, despite certain claims of, well, we need more regulation and this kind of thing. Um, Texas is a good place to buy a house. Um, the builders uh, tend to be really good, and um, there is, you know, causes of action if the builder messes up. Uh, for your listeners, uh, those you know it, that are higher income, higher end homes, uh, you know if they don't get their way, they'll sue. 
Yeah, I mean, they, and they've got money to do it. Uh, so they don't have that, you know, that economic bar to litigation. Uh, they they have disposable income to go sue. And so you always got to keep that in mind when you decide to bow up as a builder and say, I'm not going to do something out of principle, even if uh, it's something that you're, you're not required to do. Hey, if it's a low dollar item and you can pacify somebody regardless of whether they deserve it or not, do it. You know, you don't want to end up in my office spending a whole bunch of money on a tiny little claim. Uh, that's for sure. Save save those dollars for something else. When I first got started in the business 10 years ago, I had breakfast with a well-known builder that I'm sure you know his name, at least well-known in, in Texas and locally. And I was picking his brain and one of the things that came up was about liability and lawsuits and that kind of stuff. And he told me, he looked me dead in the eye and he said, don't ever, don't ever go to the courtroom as a builder, the judges and juries will always, almost always side with, with the, the homeowners. Builders have the cards stacked against them. I don't know if that's true or not, but I took it. I don't to know who you talk to, truth. but he's a wise man because <laughs> he's yeah. absolutely right. Well, and that's why every contract I've ever drafted is going to have an arbitration provision. Yeah. Like the TAB forms, arbitration provision, AIA forms even. Um, I don't particularly like them for builders, uh, but that they have arbitration provision. You know, any good construction contract in my mind is gonna have an arbitration provision. And it does tell you a lot about the person you're about to build with, uh, whether they wanna strike that or not. If they start with, hey, this is how we're gonna fight. These are gonna be the rules of our fight. Um, in the contract negotiation process, you need to think about that. Uh, and that's a good way to pick a customer is how difficult are they when you go into the contract negotiation? If they're really obsessed with, I want to take you to the courthouse and I, you know, entitled my, you know, right in front of a jury, it's constitutional and this kind of thing. And a lot of lawyers will strike that because they think, and I'll argue with them all day long that it's a fairer process and it's a cheaper process. That's not true. Okay. It's just, it's just a lie that's been perpetuated to say that arbitration is not as good and it's way more expensive and it's builder friendly, all of which is not true. Okay. Now that's stats by Don. Um, but you're, you're not going to find any studies out there that say something different either. Okay, because there's no empirical study that says, you know, it's more fair. It's just, you know, it, it, people think that they're going to get a, you know, fairness or justice in front of a jury. But I've also had juries go completely opposite and just hate the particular homeowners for whatever reason. And they pick with juries, pick winners and losers. Uh, and so you never want to be in front of a juror. This is the way I always explain it in my seminars is it, I look at my builders and I say, you know what, let's go hop in your truck. We'll drive down to Walmart. We'll pick the first 12 people we run into. And that's probably about what your journey's going to look like deciding your company's future and your financial future. And guess what? Most of the time, they're going to be all homeowners because people that serve on juries tend to be homeowners. And when I say tend to be, almost exclusively. Because people who live in apartments or not homeowners, they don't serve on juries. I mean, it's just, I mean, I, that's how I work my way through undergrad and law school is I worked in jury services up here in Tarrant County um, and saw all these jurors coming back that were actually sitting on the jury. 
And that's, they, you know, they have bias, you know, they are homeowners, they're not builders. So, and they've all got a story. If you, especially if you've ever built a home, you know, lived in a home, which people have. Okay. And, Mm -hmm. and it's just not a good place to be. That's why every single time we have arbitration, um, that the different arbitration services have now really made it a lot easier and cheaper to get access. You get, you get there quicker too. Um, you'll get a result a lot faster than you will in courts because our courts are overrun with a lot of litigation cases and especially courts of jur- general jurisdiction. Well, they're here in family law in the morning, criminal law cases. They're not interested in the civil stuff. Um, some builder fighting with them or they got other things that they got to do, which are frankly more important. You know, you got due process rights and, you know, child custody cases, that's more important than somebody that's got a broke house. Okay. Still important. Right. But that's going to get kicked down the road, um, quite a ways, uh, especially in those courts of general jurisdiction. So arbitration, you get a result a lot faster and the arbitration lists these days are really good. There's some folks on there, um, arbitrators that know what they're doing and they, they're not going to get um, sold on some emotional stuff. And they're also not going to, uh, believe a lot of nonsense from the builder saying, Oh, it's built right or whatever. It becomes a, it becomes a more, uh, uh, objective decision rather than subjective. So you go out there and you have standards that you build to, um, particular warranty standards and you go out and measure it either it fails or it doesn't it's compliance or it's not. And the arbitrator says, fix it, yeah, or don't fix it based upon those results, rather than a lot of the, well, I thought I was getting this, or it doesn't look like the way I thought it was going to look. And so, and that goes to the things you got to do in order to get, you know, the uh, appropriate result in your risk management pieces, which um, I know that you wanted to talk about today, rather than me just rant on about litigation. How do you no, prevent this... it in the first instance? <laughs> yep. I want to, I want to get to that, but you hit on something that I w- don't want to pass up. And that is talking about the, the arbitration provision and how important that is. We just shared a post yesterday on social media saying that, and this is our opinion, saying that the client's that you say no to are just as important to your success as the ones you say yes to. And I learned that unfortunately, probably too many times over my career, making that, that mistake, we have largely had amazing clients, but I've had a few that were, were difficult and, and luckily none that were, were, um, it got, it got too, uh, too bad, but a few, a few difficult uh, months when you, when you have difficult clients. And what I have learned is that uh, the contract is critically important. We use the TAB contract, which your firm drafted. And what I do, this is my tip to other builders, is I send the contract to clients, the blank template, pretty early in the process. So mm-hmm. the, the easy thing to do is to wait to the 11th hour you get, you do, you know, spend several months working with the clients and their architects to right. get everything right. buttoned up and then you send the contract in the 11th hour and everybody's excited and then they send it to their lawyer. And then all of a sudden you get all these, you know, strike throughs and major contract negotiations. 
which yeah, is hours of relationship. Yeah. yeah. And well, and for me, I, I put myself in their shoes and I think, okay, I'd probably send this to an attorney myself if I was them. But what I think it highlights right, because is it's the single biggest purchase people make in their lives. Most people. Right. Well, yeah. And, and, and we're sending them what it's a, you know, 20 page contract plus a 30 page warranty or, you know, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of stuff for somebody to go through. So I get it. But what is a litmus test for me is the extent of the red lines and how much they're, they're willing to negotiate. And like what you just said, if somebody requires that you strike through arbitrary, um, uh, arbit- I'm sorry, arbitration, then you, um, for us, that's probably a, a red flag and a non-starter. And I want to know that in like the third hour versus the 11th. So that's my tip to, to some yeah, of our because, listeners. You know, in your situation, like, like a, most of my builders, okay, of course, like the TAB set does have a design build where you work with your builder for a fee to get to the point of having plans and specifications and pricing, and that's under contract, and you get paid for that work. Well, I will tell you, most builders don't do that. Okay. Uh, most yeah. builders do all this work for free and spend, I don't know, you tell me how many hours you spend in on say a million dollar home coming up with plan specs and pricing to get, you know, get this package that the homeowners oh, want. Yeah. I mean, yeah, dozens, dozens of yeah, hours. I mean, I've got some builders that end up working with the homeowners architect and they will be 40, 50 hours into it already. Well, that's your time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you're not getting paid for that. You're getting you're just crossing your fingers that they're going to sign your deal. And then we will have homeowners out there that they hadn't signed anything, but they're using all of this information and all of your expertise. And then they go price it to one of your competitors or Chuck in a truck that, of course, Chuck in the truck is going to say they can beat your pricing by 10, 20 percent. Right. Because he doesn't have exactly. any insurance doesn't have any warranty, no sub relationships. He's going to put inferior products in, cut corners, leave, whatever. Um, and so you're at risk as a builder. So I totally agree with your point. Get the contract out there straight away. First thing saying, this is this contract I use. And frankly, the TAB set is, is owner friendly. I mean, I get a lot of builders say, oh, well, this is written by builders for builders. It's just not true. Yeah. You know? Um, go use a Trek form and show me where the warranty is. There's not one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You get some implied warranties. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. Spring court didn't really tell us. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a terrible contract for new home construction. Um, the TAB warranty, however, you get a one, a two and a 10 year warranty for cosmetics, workmanship, systems, HVAC, plumbing, mechanical, and then your 10-year major structural warranty for like framing and foundation and support structures. Um, that's that's a great industry standard warranty. And it's what, you know, before the Texas Residential Construction Commission went away in 2009, that was what the state said you were going to give. Okay. That, that agency went away. What we did uh, and got sunsetted and what we did at TAB is just wholesale adopt that warranty and have made that warranty even better over the year, over the past 10 years or so um, and adopted that particular standard. And I will tell you the major third party warranty companies out there uh, in uh, across the nation that, you know, write warranties here 
in Texas, many of them have adopted our standard. They call me and they say, hey, Don, what did you do in the in the warranty and performance standards this year? We're going to copy that. And then they take that and go get HUD and VA FHA approvals for it to the extent they need to anymore. Um, and they, you know, they get it, get it adopted. That's coming out of Texas. That's coming out of your association here in Texas that's leading the industry and leading the country in these types of things. So to, to your point, get that contract out there early. And in fact, you know, I mean, my, I have, I've encouraged for years now for builders not to do all that work for free because what it does when you put out there a design contract uh, that you're going to help them come up with their dream home, those are professional services. I don't work for free. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to give professional advice, but that's what you're doing when when you as the builder meet with the homeowner and come up with their dream home. That's your time and your effort and your expertise that they can't do without you. Okay, Then they can go hire an architect, go pay 10, 20, 40 thousand dollars. But a lot of builders can do that same thing. And a lot of builders work great with several architects in town. Right. But you're do, providing a service using your time, and there's DAB contract form for that, so that if they get to the end of that uh, and they decide they want to build with somebody else, well, go ahead. I, you know, you as the builder get paid for your efforts on helping them come up with uh, their dream home. Yeah. We just got a message from a builder yesterday saying that they have implemented the pre-construction agreement in their Mm -hmm. practice in the last few months and it completely transformed their business. It's like what you're saying, every builder needs to operate with a pre-construction services agreement or whatever you want to call it in those months leading up to the official construction agreement. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to be pushing real hard on those. And a lot of my builders don't even know that those forms are in there. There's two different ones, two different forms for that, depending on how you want to do it. And both of the forms, uh, at the end of that, if you sign a mechanics lien build contract to build what you came up with, they it, typically they give a credit for that that time and effort, uh, whether you're doing a cost plus or a fixed price on the actual build, they give a credit for that. I think that's awesome. Yeah, that's what <laughs> you know. I mean, it's, yeah, that's- yeah, it really shows how serious your your customer is. And it develops, you know, you kind of get to that tension point to know who these people are. And like you were saying earlier with picking your customers, a great risk management, 100%. Because I can tell you that that about half of my cases, again, stats by Don, um, half of my cases, there's very little wrong with the house. And what's wrong with it mm-hmm. is the relationship. And the homeowner and the builder are just at each other. And so there might, it might be a five ten thousand $10,000 fix, but the homeowner has become so mad, so angry, and the relationship is bad. And hey, just like there's bad builders out there, there are, there are bad homeowners, just bad people. And they will trick you into signing a contract and then it's on. Okay. They slow pay you. They make a whole lot of changes and don't want to pay for the changes. They drag the subs. They interfere with the subs, this kind of thing. And if we can find out who those people are beforehand, um, great. 
avoid that problem to begin with. And I can tell you, most of my builders, they sit across the table from me when they're deep into litigation and they, they say something like, Don, I kind of had a feeling fill in the blank. And because my builders are, they're gut guys. They, they feel stuff in their gut. They're, they're people, uh, they know people, they, uh, and they knew it when they went into the contract, but they just, you know, they saw the dollar signs and they want to keep busy. And most builders think that they can outbuild through their talent and efforts. Uh, they can outbuild any problem. Well, you can't outbuild somebody that's just not going to be happy, regardless of what you do. Um, that's never going to happen. Yeah, you can be the best builder out there and have great skills. And a lot of my clients, they have those skills. They're awesome builders, but they just picked a bad client. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better and couldn't agree more. Let's move to, uh, to the next question still on the lawsuits topic. Sure. When lawsuits are happening, is it common that the plaintiffs are piercing the corporate veil? Um, or I guess better said, uh, are builders getting exposed to a lot of personal liability from what you're seeing? I don't see it very often. Now they get sued all the time. But it's very, very rare to pierce the corporate veil in Texas and get at a builder personally. Now, plaintiffs do it, lawyers do it all the time because there's really no penalty for them. And they will sue. And it's, it's one of my kind of hot buttons is because just because you know as the plaintiff or the homeowner who the owner of the company is or who you dealt with, uh, or your names in the company, John Brown Homes. I'm sorry, John Brown, whoever you are. Uh, John Brown <laughs> Custom Homes, right? And they sued John Brown. Yep. I was like, well, that doesn't, just because yep. you know the owner doesn't mean there's individual liability. Is there causes of action to sue somebody individually in the construction context? Absolutely, 100%. And I see it hardly ever, okay? The, the things that a builder individually should be liable for are things that are very rarely ever happen. Okay. Now, if you steal money, that's individual liability. We have chapter 162, mm -hmm. the Texas property code, trust fund violations in the residential context. You steal somebody's money, don't pay subs, that kind of thing. You're going to have some individual liability and should, right? And there's a statute for it. Um, there's a few other things. If you just flat out lie or commit fraud, Okay. That's individual liability. Okay. And that's different. What I'm talking about is different than piercing the corporate veil. It's not piercing the corporate veil. You're just liable for your own individual tour. You did something wrong. I don't have to pierce the corporate veil for that. Okay. Um, but it yeah. is widely and ridiculously abused. It ticks me off that it happens. Um, but there's no penalty for the homeowners. It's very rare that the end of all of that that a judge, jury, arbitrator, whoever says, I'm going to make you reimburse them their attorney's fees for doing that. Because frankly, what most cases settle, it all goes away. Um, and they say no harm, no foul. But I, I mean, I'm telling you in 20 years, I haven't had an individual get popped uh, for construction defects or unless they just really messed up like on a signature line and didn't have a corporation or sales, you know, did some something. It happens so rarely. 
okay? It's not even hardly worth mentioning, but it gets alleged almost every single time in the custom home market because they know who the owners are. And it's a farce, and I wish there was a better statute to come out that says, hey, unless you really got the goods on this, we're going to pop you for some attorney's fees. And there is frivolous causes of action, and I think most of them, they are frivolous. Yeah. Um, and there is no liability there, but they still sue. Um, and so it does happen, but the, to your specific question about piercing the corporate veil, it's one of the hardest things to do in Texas under the law. Uh, there are many ways to do it, but if you are completely jacking up your corporate formation, your LLC and the LLC, man, it's hard to mess those up. Okay. It's meant for, uh, the smaller business it's meant for uh, not having to have a bunch of corporate meetings and shareholder meetings and filling out all this paperwork and doing all this nonsense of just signing for yourself. Uh, that's why LLCs are, I like them. Uh, of course, do what your CPA says to do, you know, as far as what's the best fit for you for taxes. But the LLC, generally speaking, is an ignored uh, entity for tax purposes and it's just passed through taxation. Uh, but it's hard, it's hard to pierce an LLC unless you've really done some snaky stuff. Okay. Uh, or just let it lapse and don't pay your taxes and don't renew, uh, you know, with secretary of state and just doing the most that you get letters in the mail from the state on this kind of thing. It's hard to mess up. Just pay attention to it every year. Once a year, make sure you're good. Yeah. Go on the Secretary of State's website, pull it up, make sure you're still an entity. It's not hard to do. Okay. Um, and, and, yeah. and, you know, frankly speaking, it's hard to pierce the corporate veil, but it's something that builders get really upset about, and you should, you know, getting sued individually when there's no basis for it. Uh, but it does does happen, but the liability on the back end, unless you're stealing money or really doing something wrong, uh, it's just not there. Yeah, it's just not there. Yeah. But 100% okay. do not build in your individual capacity. I still have some old timers that do it and they say, I've never been sued, never this, never that. It's just a matter of statistics and time. If you build enough product, uh, and, uh, you, look at the calendar and go, you know, a few years, four years, five years, eventually you're going to either one, have a bad customer. Okay. Or you're going to have some type of defect, mm -hmm. uh, or you might have, you know, some type of, you know, natural disaster type thing where somebody tries to subrogate against you, whatever the case may be. It's just a matter of stats as a builder to end up, you know, getting sued. Okay. You, know, you can be a great builder and still end up getting sued. In fact, you know, happens a lot. You know, the volume builder guys, well, that's why they have in-house general counsels because statistically they know they're going to suffer some lawsuits because they're, you know, building something with people using 30,000 products and you know, stuff goes wrong. Yeah. That goes into my mentality on the business, which is that, you know, it's inherently a, a it's a good industry, but it's a risky industry. And you can, a, an excellent builder can mitigate, in my opinion, against 95% of things that can go wrong with good systems and, and uh, policies and procedures in place. Um, but 
that final, you know, 5% or whatever it might be. There's some small percent of things that there's just too many variables in play at any given time to guard 100% against everything. So if there's always some small amount of things that can go wrong, even for an excellent builder, then you multiply that small percentage of things that can go wrong over number of years, over number of clients, and it increases to a greater and greater Yeah, I mean, percentage. especially because it, most of my builders, especially in Texas, the industry standard is uh, a 10-year major structural warranty. And in Texas, we have we do have statute of limitations, but we also have statute of repose that's you know, 10 years, but there is a two-year tail on, on the 10 years. And so potentially 12 years of liability. So that starts stacking up before it starts dropping off again. So really what you have to do today is go look at all the product you built going back to, you know, 2018, technically, you know, uh, and that's your amount of potential liability. It's not like when you go out there and buy a TV and there's a 90 day warranty on it. Okay. That goes away quick. So that's a huge number for a lot of builders. This is a good segue to my next question. Let's say that we're going back to school for a second. If a builder wants to receive an A plus from you on the legal side of things, what things would he or she need to okay. have in place? So on the legal side of things, um, there's a lot of stuff you can do. Some of it's more expensive, some of it's less expensive. And so you kind of have to rank what you want to do. The first and foremost thing you always do as a builder is have good contracts, right? Uh, I love the TAB set. Yep. My firm's drafted them for years. Uh, it's a good form. Uh, there's lots of different types of forms depending on your business relationship. It's a long contract because we've seen a lot of situations and that's why we got to cover a lot of ground in a very complex transaction. Now that's just the sales contract, right? It has things like how you get paid, when you're going to get paid, can you file a lien if you don't get paid, limit your damages, what happens if you get in the fuss, can you terminate the owner, um, you know, mediation arbitration provisions, what your warranty obligation is, and it specifically spells that out, waive and disclaim all those terrible implied warranties. Uh, there, you know, that's, and, and in certain contexts, you've got to have that particular document or your lien rights are not in existence in certain contexts, like the homestead context. Um, so you start with the consumer contract, right? But just as important as the consumer contract is all your trade agreements with your subcontractors. Uh, because, you know, just overarching, let's just say use construction defect for an example. Whatever you give to the consumer by way of, let's say you get to closing, you close on a new home sale, or you do a build job and you finish and complete and they're occupied, whatever your warranty obligation is to that homeowner consumer, you should be getting from your subcontractors. And if you're getting a different obligation from your sub, than you are giving to the consumer, well, who's covering the gap? Well, the builder is out of your own pocket. Because uh, I see a lot of invoicing that comes in from electrical, plumbing, foundation, major systems that say one year, 
you know, parts and labor or one year, whatever. And they won't even, won't even explain what that obligation is. It just says one year, right? I don't even know what that means. You know, one year of what? Uh, and then you turn around and give a two year or a 10 year obligation on warranty. Well, that's not good. You need to have a commensurate warranty obligation from your sub to you, from you to your consumer. And that applies to subsequent homeowners too, you know, because people move, people move a lot. I don't know what the latest stat is. It used to be like seven years at some point, you know, people move around on average. Um, I would say it's probably lower now. I don't know, but uh, you have a warranty obligation to subsequent homeowners as well. It doesn't just expire because the original customers move out. Um, and that's pretty well established. Yeah. And you don't that's, get to pick those people. <laughs> you know, that's whoever you get. Yeah, that's one of the challenges in in the the warranties and and it is what it is. That's a question I've always had. So theoretically, you know, um during the extent of the warranty, the home could sell mm-hmm. a thousand times and you've got a thousand different clients, right? There's no that's there's right. no expiration. It, the the only thing that determines expiration is the actual yeah, time that's itself. Right. That's right. That's the way we set up our contracts. So, yeah. I think that's industry acceptable. I know that some folks out there, um, I know other industries, it's just the first consumer, you know, I'm talking, you know, different kind of products or whatever. Uh, but in our world, I think it's a really hard sell and I'd have a hard time, you know, arguing that, you know, somebody sells, uh, you know, buys a house with a 10 year warranty, a one, two and 10, um, even if they have a third party warranty on it with the third party warranties are always transferable. Um, at least the good ones are. Um, and you, yeah, uh, let's say, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith and they get transferred out of town for, to a different job, you know, out of state, when the house is nine months old, you know, um, that house becomes much less marketable yep. to them if you're still selling in that same neighborhood and now their warranty's gone and, you know, the the, the people that are going to buy their house, you know, they look at the house next door and say, oh, do you want a warranty or no warranty? Well, I mean, that's a no brainer. So, um, yeah, it does extend to the next next homeowners. That's the way we specifically set ours up okay. because I think that's the way to make the contract terms and conditions in the warranty context enforceable is not have it just expire on the, you know, sell yeah. the transfer to the next homeowner. Yeah. And it's, it seems, seems fair to the, the homeowner's perspective as well. All right. So, so first line of defense, solid contracts with obviously your clients, also with your, your trade partners, anything, anything else that. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, and now, you know, contracts are cheap to do, right. Especially if you're a TAB member, you buy the tab contracts, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost free in the grand scheme of things. um, And it's a no brainer. Um, Now you can start spending other people's, uh, you know, your money. Now I can go spend a lot of my builders money on a lot of risk management stuff. Um, but if you did everything I uh-huh. told you to do from a risk management standpoint, um, the house might not be able to be sold because it's so expensive to do. Um, but you know, yeah. in no particular order, yeah. there's insurance and there's third party warranty. Those are big, heavy stones that are great to have. 
Um, those are the next two big blocks outside of contracts. Uh, you know, you got um, general liability insurance. Um, of course, you got your builder's risk when you're doing a build job yep. and um, have product on the ground. But general liability insurance and third-party warranty. Uh, I love for my folks to have have those. Uh, and, you know, going back to the contracts, and I like to beat on this drum a lot, if you have good subcontract agreements, then your subs in those forms, there's a mandate for insurance. And the way we've set it up now is that the, I'm getting hyper-technical here, but in those subcontract agreements, your sub is to get general liability insurance, is to name you as the builder as an additional insured under their policy, um, make sure they have completed operations uh, in their policy, uh, they have adequate amounts, and you got to look at the certificate of insurance and make sure they don't have a bunch of exclusions. Uh, like I've seen roofers that have GL policies that exclude roofs. Okay. And the only reason they have it is for personal injury context, but it doesn't cover any of their work. It specifically excludes it. Um, seeing the same thing with uh, different trades where all of their work is actually excluded for the particular type of work that they're doing. And they're just buying it for personal injury protection type stuff. And it doesn't cover any property damage on the residential context. So you got to kind of got to know what you're doing. And I teach seminars on this to, you know, be able to spot you know, the, the, those types of things. But um, so you got your general liability insurance. And when you as a builder go out there to buy it, it's not all the same, not by any stretch of the imagination. Um, that industry has massively changed back and forth over the years, um, and especially in the last 20 years or so. We went from being able to cover a lot of claims in uh, in a lot of different GL policies to virtually none. And then there's been kind of a resurgence, but that resurgence is not back to the old days. It's just a skinny little piece of coverage. And it really depends on what you're buying. It 100%, this is something like going out and buying a car or a house or anything else. Um, you get what you pay for a lot of the time. And sometimes you pay more for less. So you, because it's the type of industry that, most builders have no idea what they're getting. And if you put it down in front of them, they wouldn't know what to look for. Um, it took me a good five, almost 10 years of practice to even be able to um, look at these policies, being a construction lawyer and doing sticks and bricks type construction def defect litigation to really understand um, these policies uh, in the first instance, because there are lawyers that that's all they do every day is um, they're insurance lawyers, you know, and they represent insureds against insurance companies. And uh, there is, they specialize in it. And the reason why is because it's very complex. And so it's hard to know what you get. You got to start with a good agent. Uh, you can't go out there and just get the person that's selling home and auto and life insurance and everything else, you got to get somebody that knows the industry and they know what builders do and they know the types of risks that builders have. And they're able to tell you, okay, well, here's what these policies say. I'm shopping three or four different carriers uh, and they need to be able to tell you the differences. 
uh, on them. And so that market has changed a lot over the years and it's very specialized. You got to know what you're getting. And some of them, you know, you, you have a good piece and then a bad piece. And then you look over at the other policy and it's just reversed. And so you have to decide where you want to take that risk. And that's why I keep looping back to those subcontract agreements and how important it is to have the right subcontract agreement in place so that you can lean on the subcontractor's insurance and not just your own. And so that's, you know, in a nutshell, that's yeah. a GL. I do uh, like an hour long talk on, <laughs> on just GL alone. Uh, the other big uh, uh, piece that you can do from a, especially from a custom home builder market is a third party warranty, kind of like GL. They're not all created the same. Every, you know, every company that sells some type of risk management, some type of paper, they have the paper part that says what you're getting, you know, and they can have really strong paper or really weak paper, but then you also got the company behind it. Uh, and those companies, do they have a good company culture, uh, a good reputation or bad? Because you can have good paper in a bad company and it's then it equals bad, right? Uh, or you can have bad paper in a good company and it still equals bad. You got to have both or some measure you know, of that. And so with third-party warranty, uh, it's something I recommend to all, all builders uh, because stuff just does go wrong. Um, most of the third-party warranty product out there uh, that's good will cover from day one major structural defects. I would not necessarily buy unless you're really looking to save some money or if you are saving money or you're really tight with everything else with your foundation contractor or if you build in an area where you just don't have active soils. Um, I would always recommend and if I was a builder, I would buy a third-party warranty product that covers major structural defects from day one. Um, and those products are available out there so that you can fully transfer that risk. Doesn't mean that you won't get sued, but you can fully transfer the risk to the third party warranty company on the major big ticket items. Uh, you know, the foundation framing from day one all the way through the end of the warranty period. That's a great thing to change. And on most of those, same products, you as the builder or the warrantor during years one and two for the cosmetics and systems, you're still the warrantor on those products as the builder, which is fine because you have those relationships, you know, because the average foundation case that, you know, I see broken house case, you know, by the time you get done, if it's legit um, broke, and when I say legitimately broke, we're talking violation of the applicable ASCE standard uh, that's in the tab warranty L over 360 for deflection and then 1% for tilt. That's the objective standard that's adopted. You go out there and you measure it. Let's say it's failed. The average cost of those is expensive. Okay? By the time you get done fixing the foundation, fixing the cosmetics, and maybe the homeowner has to be displaced during the repair period. And then under Texas law, um, the RCLA, if you have a major structural defect, uh, the homeowner may be entitled to diminution in market value. That's a lot of money by the time you get to the end of it. Okay. Um, and you want to be able to transfer as mo mu much of that 
out to a third party warranty uh, if you can, you know, and then pay for the fix. Uh, so if they're paying for the fix, yeah, average foundation, you know, that I see on big, expensive, nice houses, you're looking at eighty, hundred thousand dollars by the time it's all said and done. Everything, right? Um, that's not uncommon. Smaller footprint houses, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a few piers, drainage, and grading, and you're fine. Um, and it's five thousand dollars. Well, um, that's still a lot of money if you get a whole uh, street moving around, but for your listeners, your custom home guys, that, that ticket, that's a big ticket to write. And you can't do too many of those on your own and survive. Yeah. Those are my top three, (laughs) um, contract GL third party warranty. Uh, those are my top three. I have a presentation that I do that has 25. Okay. And a lot of them are things that we covered you know, and circling back to picking the right customer. Uh, To me, that no matter what kind of paper you have, no matter what kind of risk management you have, GL, third-party warranty, good contracts, end up in arbitration, all of these provisions, good subject, that doesn't do anything for having a bad customer because bad customer, they don't care about any of that. They're just going to sue. They're going to go hire a lawyer and say a bunch of stuff that you've done wrong and you got to defend against it. Is it safe to say that these three that you have laid out right now, I realize we're not doing, doing justice to, you know, you, you've got a 25 point presentation and can't cover it all right, in a 30 minute right. podcast, yeah. but is it, is yeah. it safe to say that the three that you laid out would represent kind of that, that 80, 20 rule, 20% of everything you can do that could cover kind of 80% of the bases. Is that a fair? Yeah, it might. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't like to put a percentage to it, but I know my, I, you're a builder. I know builders love hearing those things rather than just, you know, significant or all the, or reasonable amount. They hate those lawyer words. They like numbers. I, that's That's fair to say. Okay. I mean, I couldn't, I, I mean, I could argue it either way, but yeah, I mean, it's, but that's true though. You do those three things because I can tell you when a, new client or an existing client doesn't matter shows up at my door or sends me an email and says, Hey, uh, I've got this deal. Okay. It's construction defect case or whatever kind of dispute really doesn't matter. You know, if it's construction defect or not, that's really the, that's where I start. What contract did you use? Okay. I start there. Next question. Do you have GL insurance? Next question. Do you have third party warranty? And then I start asking all the sub questions about subcontractor agreements and this kind of thing. Um, and then I have a whole series after that, but really those are the three questions I kind of start with. And if you say, no, I didn't use a tab contract. No, I don't have GL and no, I don't have a third party warranty that massively changes my idea of what this case is going to be about and how much it's going to cost the builder. If you show up and say tab contract, GL and third party warranty. Oh, by the way, I also have all my trades have uh, subcontract agreements and they all have insurance themselves. Uh, you may walk out of this thing with zero. Now, big factor in all that is, well, who's suing you? Okay. <laughs> well, who's the plaintiff's lawyer and who are the homeowners? You know, that matters too. Yeah, you know, uh, because 
Plaintiff's lawyers can make me do a lot of work I don't want to do. I have great relationships with, you know, almost every plaintiff's lawyers I've ever dealt with. Um, uh, But it doesn't mean that they're not going to work that case hard. Yeah. Um, Your opponent matters, right? Um, So, uh, yeah, those are are the big ones. You're you're absolutely right. 80-20 might be more than that, okay? Um, It's important. Those are the big ones. Yeah. Yeah. This was a lot we packed in to 30 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever it is, but man, this is just critically important stuff. So Don, I really appreciate your time. I think we can wrap it at that, but man, I sure hope that we've got some people listening that'll hear some things and make some changes as a result. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a big advocate of local builders associations. Um, I think they do uh, a great job. Join a local um, wherever you're at in the state, you have one. Okay? Join, and then you automatic member of Texas Association and National. Uh, there's such great resources there, and that's the only way you can get the TAB contracts too. Is to uh, be a member of a of a local, and frankly, those are the best forms out there. Um, if you don't want to have to mess with going and tapping the shoulder of your lawyer uh, every couple of years and say, hey fix my contract for all the litigation that happened and um, and also uh, uh, all the case law and whatever the new cutting edge things that people are suing for, unless you want to do that every year or two years and we'll just buy the tab contracts and you don't really have to think about it. Um, so yeah. I'm a big advocate for um, putting back into the industry uh, and the best way to do that is being a member of a local builders association. Um, and they're great people. And it's great resources for uh, my builders to be able to. And that's, frankly, I've pretty much, that's the only place I'll talk anymore. I mean, I've done lots of continuing education for different outfits over the years. And I'll pretty much only do uh, TAB or uh, local or national builders association stuff anymore because those are the guys that deserve to hear yeah. the best information that they can get. Well, I want to plug you guys for a second before we hang up, um, because you guys wrote the contract, the TAB contract here in Texas. So any of our listeners who are building in Texas, if uh, if you guys don't already have representation, or if you're looking for a change, definitely uh, Bushrod Nikki Shelton. So I've talked to so you, Don, um, and then also James Rudnicki. He's been on a previous podcast. You guys, again, wrote the book, so to speak, here in Texas. So y'all are the experts, and uh, it's always very nice to uh, get the chance to pick your brain. So thank you for coming on. I uh, appreciate it. Have a good one, my friend. 